So, you know, I think about high school, they don't come out vocationally prepared. The data suggests, and I have seen this for myself, they're not college prepared, as college prepared as they were 20 years ago. The military says, well, they're not physically prepared, that they're not able to handle the PT standards. Then the last bit of it is, is mental health. If you look at the mental health data, it's not great for our high school graduates. So in terms of career, upper education through college, physical healthness or mental healthness, we're failing these 18-year-old kids. Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, our guest is Professor Mark David Witte of the College of Charleston. Welcome to the program, Mark. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for having me. So what possessed you to study economics and what is economics? Well, I'm a lucky guy. And that's okay. because when I was an undergraduate, I was taking the classes that I should, and I had a social science requirement. And I thought, okay, well, there's a lot of different classes I can take. Well, I'll take economics as my social science classes, primarily because I was doing a lot of summer school and econ fit in very well in my schedule. And so I took the first econ class and the second econ class, principles of micro and principles of macro, and fell in love. It was love at first textbook. It was as if there was this field that was entirely intuitive. And when I say intuitive, economics is very much a study of scarcity. So we are once are more or less infinite, and yet the goods and services that we could have are finite. And so trying to understand how it is that society actually builds the stuff that we want, how it ends up distributing the stuff that we want, and doing so within a mathematical framework I fell in love immediately and have not left college since. I went more or less straight from undergraduate to graduate school to a college campus as a professor. And so really, truly, this is what I've been doing the last two decades. I was intrigued running through your curriculum vitae that you have a diverse array of publications. Uh, you mentioned in the pre-show that you're going back to Rome to work with Luigi Ventura on another project. And I was fascinated that you could simultaneously be writing about college football and the Vegas line, and also about network-adjusted market share and the currency denomination of trade. And I wondered kind of where those things meet in reality. So I'm a big believer in studying whatever shows up in front of you. Like if you're interested in it and you're willing to spend six months to many years studying a project, well, you had better really want to study that one particular thing. And so I'll just be chatting with colleagues or at a conference chatting with other economists. And before you know it, it might be that they have some data that my research methodology is applicable to or vice versa, and you're collaborating. So Luigi was someone that I met at a conference back in 2008, and he and I have been publishing with his Italian trade ever since. I had a graduate school buddy of mine who was also big into college football. And so we started publishing a lot of papers that looked at college football, not just from the perspective of the teams involved, but the players from high school to possibly being drafted in the NFL. We spent a lot of time looking at all kinds of varying aspects of college football. And then I have a buddy here who does interesting work with the new Taiwanese dollar and the swap market. And so when I run into a project or run into a colleague that's got an interesting idea, oftentimes I'll think, well, just hand me that baton. I'm ready to run with this thing. So apropos of this, what do you think of the 
you know, you, you wrote about can schools buy success in college football? And of course, the way I perceived it, I'm not sure how long ago that publication was precisely, but there was an era when, you know, Alabama would have the best facilities in the United States. And so they could, you know, the dorms were beautiful and the food was magnificent and, and everything was great there. Whereas my undergraduate alma mater, the University of Maryland, was not nearly as fancy. Did you ever imagine in a million years that they would be directly paying through NILs to pay, you know, a high school quarterback $3 million to come to their schools? I have to admit, I'm in many ways delighted to see these name, image, and likenesses, in part because for far too often, you had colleges selling uniforms with a player's name on the back, and that player is not getting a single penny out of it. And from an ethical standpoint, I found it very frustrating. And this is one of the things that I learned through my college football research is sometimes it's better to not know how the sausage is made. The more I studied it, the less I liked the industry that was operating behind it. Our research in that particular paper showed that it's very costly to buy success, which is to say that when you're at a baseline level of facilities and a baseline level of spending, like Maryland is, for example, in the Big Ten, the ability to get better as a result of those facility expenditures, at least in college football, is extremely limited because your competition has the same amount of money as you do. However, one of the papers that I'm looking into, I have a graduate student who is going to be playing with this, is looking at spillovers. So for example, the college football team gets a lot of money, spends a lot on facilities. Well, what does that do for your Olympic athletes? What does that do for your, your tennis players and your golf? Is there a spillover of success to them at all? Because oftentimes in especially medium-sized schools like the College of Charleston, it might be that the basketball team gets a lot of money and gets a lot of prestige, but then all of those facilities that's built by the athletic department, well, the sailing team has access to those now. So does that lead to success in these other areas or not? It's intriguing also because there was such an amazing change by dint of Title IX that suddenly women had to be treated the same as men and a lot of schools eliminated sort of peripheral sports so they could pursue the economics of having a successful women's basketball team or softball team or field hockey team and that sort of thing. So I would think that there would be some interplay with the phenomenon you're talking about, that simultaneously having a really successful football program provides facilities for other sports, but many of those sports may have been eliminated in the process of you know, observance of Title IX. Do you see any of that effect? Yeah, well, I, I think there's something to that. One of the universities that we're studying is Coastal Carolina. And the reason why we're studying Coastal Chanticleers? Carolina- Are they Chanticleers? I should know this. I, yes. <laughs> I know they've gotten, their football team has gotten very good over the yeah. last few years. So they, they've had both a lot of money as well as a lot of success. And they've, they've only recently joined Division 1A, as it was formerly known, but the football bowl series, the FBS schools. And so we want to get an idea of whether or not those spillovers are happening there, because one would assume that if you've got this men's football team that has all of a sudden brand new training facilities, perhaps a training table, like their own nutritionists, that quite possibly you might see the women's sports also having access to these facilities as well through Title IX. 
I mean, if that occurs, then I think it's a magnificent thing. I just inherently skeptical about it. I admit my skepticism, especially with the college sports in its present form, is the football money through television contracts is easy money and oftentimes split by the conference to every single school equally. And so it's entirely possible that you can be not a great school in terms of what you're putting competitively on the field, but the money keeps coming anyway. And whenever in economics, like whenever you detach production from consumption, you end up with problems. Well, I think the University of Maryland, at least in football, is grateful for the money that Ohio State and Michigan and the Big Ten put into their pockets through the Big Ten network. Yes. And and I will say this. I think the name, image, and likeness money is going to diversify college football even more. You combine it with the transfer portal, and this I think is going to be true in other college sports. It means that if I am, say, a second team running back at Alabama, well, I could go be first team if I just moved to Kentucky. And at Kentucky, they'll also, there's this car dealership that will be delighted to hand me money and the lease on a brand new vehicle if I just transfer over to Kentucky and then I'll get playing time and money out of it. I think you're going to see more democratization of college sports than we've seen in the last two decades. And that process, because college players only last four years maximum, it's going to happen very quickly. One of the wonderful things that's going on at Maryland right now, they have a good team going forward and had a pretty good team this year with a hot new coach. And Michigan's star center, Hunter Dickinson, has left Michigan and is wandering around going to Kentucky, Kansas, Maryland, Villanova, and that sort of thing. And there is a bidding war for him where he's likely to get paid $2 million this year. He's got two years of eligibility left. And the notion is that he can make much more money staying in the United States playing college basketball as an amateur than he can. The thought is that he doesn't have the skill set to be in the NBA or the NBA G League or to play in Tunisia or China or Turkey or something. And it is sort of a full circle thing where the amateurs make more money playing amateur basketball in the United States than they do any kind of professional you know, basketball anywhere else in the world. And I see this as being of great value, not only to the players, but to the athletic system itself. Because in the NBA, you know, as you mentioned, they're not looking for centers, right? They want, everybody wants shooting, right? So centers are highly devalued. So he's going to the place where he's going to be valued the most and paid the most. Oh, this, this is the wonder of economics working well. I knew we would come around to that. <laughs> so just glanced at the New York Times on Saturday and the headline in the business section, Fed reports illuminate an economy still uneven. And I kind of take that apart and say, what the hell does that mean? Well, it is fascinating watching over the last few years, and this process has been accelerated by COVID, the middle class is really, truly disappearing. And I, I guess I shouldn't say disappearing, but it's being hollowed out. Now, part of that is entirely positive, which is to say there's a lot of upper middle class that are finding their way into the upper class, which, is, you know, that's extraordinarily positive. We would love to see that individuals over the course of their lifetime earn greater income. This is what we tend to see in, in labor economics. And so in an ideal circumstance, those people who are in not necessarily in the top quartile, but the, you know, the second quartile, that they work their way up into the top quartile over time. But Alarmingly, we're also seeing that the share of wealth 
by the bottom 50% is looking very, very negative. And there's a lot of reasons for this, as I'm sure the Federal Reserve pays attention to, and as I'm sure good reporters at the New York Times should be paying attention to. A lot of things are at play. I think about this from an education perspective. That is a bias of mine because I've had such a fine time in education and still do. I feel like really, truly, we are creating a problem in K through 12. Because if I look at the statistics, if I look at, say, are our high school graduates vocationally prepared? Well, no, no. I mean, the, the vocations they're prepared for are maybe being a cashier. Are our high school they used to be? Well, I, I think that we did have some amount of vocational training that that disappeared in the 70s and 80s, where we decided everyone should be ready for college. And as a college professor, I can say not everyone should go to college. This is not necessarily a great idea. There was an article recently in the Wall Street Journal. It was an interview with the uh, CEO of Waste Management. And he said that he can go out and hire $60,000 MBAs all day and get all kinds of applicants, but he can't find a garbage truck driver in Houston paying $90,000. So that CDL license, right? That's, that's worth some amount of money. So yes, my frustration is in many ways, high schools to a lesser extent, K through 12 wholly, but I feel like there should be some amount of vocational training, a journeyman carpenter. So that's a mid-level carpenter, not a fully unionized carpenter. Journeyman carpenters get paid average in the United States, about $55 an hour. So that's over the course of a 2000 hour year, that's 110 K. That's not bad for someone who might have started out as an apprentice carpenter at age 18 and at age 23, 24 is in a six-figure earnings. So, you know, I think about high school, they don't come out vocationally prepared. The data suggests, and I have seen this for myself, they're not college prepared, as college prepared as they were 20 years ago. The military says, well, they're not physically prepared, that they're not able to handle the PT standards. Then the last bit of it is, is mental health. If you look at the mental health data, it's not great for our high school graduates. So in terms of career, upper education through college, physical healthness or mental healthness, we're failing these 18-year-old kids. And so it does not surprise me when the net result of that is a whole set of the population that doesn't have upward mobility because at age 18, we've put them loose in the world that they are not well-equipped to handle. So I sort of perceive it as being like, there are a lot of people who are opposed to taxing people who make a lot of money. And it's an aspirational thing. You may be making $45,000 a year, but you don't want the millionaires taxed because you hope to be one someday. And it's the same kind of puzzling thing because it seems like making $110,000 a year would improve the lot of many people in the United States. And yet if the schools aren't oriented that way or the system isn't oriented that way or the mental outlook going forward isn't oriented that way, it's kind of disadvantageous to everybody. I think that's very true. And I think that's what we're finding now is that it's extremely disadvantageous to have a set of the population that may not be able to work their way out of Section 8 housing, may not be able to work their way out of food stamps or subsidized health care in some respect or another. I oftentimes tell my college students that, no, no, you guys, you don't get to go work for the nonprofit and change the world. You need to pay taxes. Someone has to make the money and pay taxes. I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I, I often say July. I'm 4th, here. <laughs> July 4th is not the most patriotic day on the calendar. It's April 15th. That's that's when you show true patriotism is when you're writing the check. 
So when you become dictator of the United States, and I'm not telling a lot of people about this, just you and me and Chris are in on this right now. What are you going to do different? Well, fix, fix these things, make things better, have so, more egalitarian world. So in, in the rule of high school, the, the first thing that I would probably do is create three different tracks. So the first track would be the standard track, and that would be a track associated with going to college. We are going to prepare you for college. We are going to do calculus. We are going to be doing literature and writing, and we're going to get you ready for the critical thinking skills that you're going to have to display when you end up at college. A second track that I would make available to students is a vocational track. And that vocational track would be, all right, so, you know, looking around in the local area, what kind of welders do we need? What kind of folks do we need in carpentry, plumbing, construction trades? Because it's entirely possible you can take a kid who's 14, 15 years old and say, all right, we're going to let you learn construction from the bottom up. And so by the time you're 25, you're a contractor. And as anyone who's ever worked with a contractor will tell you, contractors can do very well and still be entirely incompetent, still be very bad at their job. And yet they seem to make a lot of money doing so. And so that the would lawyer, be- the lawyers count as contractors. <laughs> Uh, I won't make fun of lawyers. And that's because whenever you need a lawyer, your lawyer is the best, right? Everyone loves Fair having point. their own. Lawyers are kind of like children and pets in that respect, right? Nobody likes dealing with someone else's, but we all like having our own. Um, anyway, yeah. you're going along. I didn't mean to throw you off there. Yeah, no, no. Look, I live by tangents, right? That's that's the, the nature of the beast. But then, and the third track, I guess, would be get you out of high school as soon as possible, which is to say a legitimate pathway to a GED. So if you've got a 13, 14-year-old kid, 15-year-old kid, they're unhappy with life. They don't want to be in school. Instead of saying, well, look, you're, we're going to keep you here in this state mandated prison until you're 18. We say, okay, fine. You don't want to be here. We are going to do everything we can to get you what you need to know in order to have this degree and then get you out the door to whatever it is that you feel like you want to do. I was intrigued. My daughter graduated from high school a year early and through American Field Service went and lived in Switzerland. And that's the way their school systems are set up. There is like she went to the, the Canton School Solothurn, and that was a purely academic thing. And I mean, it was hard for her because she didn't speak French or German well. And they were teaching, you know, the most serious courses you could take. And all the kids were highly industrious and everything. But then there were other schools. Then there was very much a strong vocational program. And then there was a third school that I never heard fully described but I suspect it falls into the category of your final one. Yeah. And the uh, Swiss seem to do well. Yes. I think about this a lot in terms of, there was a, a fascinating article that I read about a year ago, and it, it effectively said that all of our economic problems could be solved with more housing. Now they had this, you know, long set of reasoning. There was a few things that came to me from this. Like the, the first obvious thing was if you have more housing, then you don't need as much money because housing prices will be lower and you don't need to spend a third to a half of your income on housing. But one Do you of the find other, that's true? Well, as an individual giving advice, if I were to put on my dad hat to my students, I would probably tell them, no, you don't want to spend 50% of your income on housing. And especially when they're young and they don't have kids, the minimal amount of housing is probably the best amount of housing for them. But that said, I'm a big believer that 
in order to accrue wealth, most people in the middle class and in the working class will do so through their mortgage. And that's because it is the one time that they have access to the kind of leverage that Wall Street folks do. You can put 20% down. And if the value of the home goes up by $10,000, then you've only put 20% down. So you're getting all that $10,000 benefit by having only put in effectively $2,000 of investment to get there. And because home prices typically go up over the course of decades by the rate of inflation, it's a fantastic inflation hedge for one's assets. And so you can imagine a scenario where, say, I'll make the math easy. Suppose the inflation rate was 8%, something terrible, a terrible 8%. Well, if you're only paying 3% on the interest on your mortgage, well, then you're getting 8% of the total value of the home as a return, and you're only paying 3% on the 80% of the original value that you paid for the house. So yes, incredible leverage on inflation that is not otherwise available to working class folks and middle income folks. I don't necessarily think housing is the first best investment that people who are starting out should consider, especially- What's the first best investment? That's our listeners. Oh, 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 yes, my, our wonderful- What, what would your students or what would, you know, kid gets out of HCC or gets out of college at Charleston, what's the first best investment, do you think? First best investment is having a sufficient amount of cash that you can move anywhere in the United States. You need to have luggage. And that's because your career might move you to another opportunity. If there's some place in Georgia, like if, if, if Atlanta has a great job offer for you, I want you to have the cash in your pocket so that you can move to Atlanta. We need to have those cash assets on hand so that you can pay those two months rent that's required of you, the security deposit that's required of you, the moving expenses from the moving company, whatever it is. Yeah, that cash needs to be ready to rock and roll, which I know is not a very exciting investment, in, you know, because everyone wants to buy some kind of crypto or have the brand new stock that's going to go to the or a car. Yeah, yeah, which are terrible investments. Generally. I was aware of that. Although I love my clunkers. And for the record, to all those students out there, I've had a car since I was 16 and I've never purchased a new car. Love my used cars. I've always driven used cars. Terrible investments. But that said, you know, necessary. And so, yeah, first thing you can do is have some cash on hand so that you're flexible with your work. Because if you need to have, say, $8,000 in cash to be able to move to a new metro area where you can be paid an extra $15,000 a year, that is money well spent. All right. So I got to knock out a few topics fairly quickly. And the question is, did you foresee the worldwide pandemic associated with COVID? No. In fact, and how do you I, study? I mean, it's 100 years since the 1917, 1918 flu thing. I would presume that the consequences of that were studied by economists and that they quickly went back to their notes from studying that when all this happened. How did you react to it? What did you think? So my first initial reaction, and I wrote an op-ed about this for the Charleston Chamber of Commerce back in March or April of 2020. And, and I'm very proud of this article because in many ways it was right, uh, many ways it was wrong. But I effectively stated that I don't think the value of assets is zero, that I don't think companies like ExxonMobil sitting on all that oil and gas, even though the price of oil went negative very briefly at the initial start of the pandemic, I don't believe the value of the company is going to zero. Here you had the price of all of these stocks and other assets in decline very quickly. Well, <laughs> well, they bounced back. 
right? Yes, they did. A nice V-shaped recovery. And so effectively, to get my inner Gordon Gecko out of here, greed was good because (laughs) greed brought people to the stock market who saw these assets, saw these companies and said, you know what? I don't think the value is zero. Now on certain companies, we found out the value was zero. It turns out that regardless of what was at the bed, bath and beyond, no, they were going to go bankrupt. And there, you know, there were a few other companies, the cruise lines in particular, that were hit very, very hard by this. Zoom um, did brilliantly because of things like this. And I mean, who in, saw that coming? Indeed. And, and this has opened up all kinds of other opportunities as well. The fact that you can now have a socially acceptable conversation with someone many states over. It has allowed people to have job interviews with companies that previously probably would never have picked up that resume because, oh, well, they wouldn't move here anyway. Well, now you can have a Zoom call. The cost of doing those first few interviews has dropped to zero. And so it has enabled a much more mobile labor force, which is an important aspect when we know that structural unemployment, which is a which is a huge problem in a large country like ours, you can reduce some of the structural unemployment by moving people who have certain skills in one area over to another part of the country where those skills are most in demand. Or through remote work, having those folks not even move at all from where they are, but being hired up by the companies where their skill set is going to be in the highest demand. And thus, those employees are going to be paid the most amount of money. So the final thing I would say about all that, there is a great emphasis in the Washington Post in particular, everybody's got to go back to work. And, you know, they're kind of always have been, you know, for a liberal paper, it has a pretty conservative editorial policy. And so it's, oh, everybody's government workers have to go back to work and private workers and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, people don't want to. People like being able to work in their pajamas and not commute. And I'm wondering if you think there are any significant long-term benefits from all of this working at home as opposed to going in and buying my sandwich downstairs at the deli. Well, I think there's two benefits to be had here. The first benefit is obviously to the individuals who want to be able to do some kind of hybrid work or work from home, which I'm seeing that consistently is it's not the full-time remote work that tends to be popular, but you know, maybe coming in Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I can see that just locally driving around that the traffic on Monday and Friday mornings just is not as heavy. And so I feel like there is more hybrid work going on. So that's obviously that's a benefit to the employees themselves. To the employers, what I would tell them is that there's huge benefits to allowing remote and hybrid work in that these are non-monetary benefits that you're paying to your employees. Monetary benefits come directly out of your bottom line, but to the extent that you can offer scheduling flexibility and remote flexibility, oh, you're going to have all kinds of employees that will be delighted to come work for you. So for example, I'm going on a tangent here. Pre-2020, we were seeing increases in the labor force driven mostly by stay-at-home parents who were entering back into the workforce. Well, obviously 2020 occurs and all those stay-at-home parents, people who would have otherwise been stay-at-home parents, they're back to being stay-at-home parents. And so now you've got this whole set of potential workers that want to be involved with their families, want to stay home with their kids. They're ready to work, however. 
they have hours of the day that they could be putting to you know your company's benefit if you're just willing to offer them that schedule flexibility where maybe instead of considering them a full-time equivalent worker maybe you're like okay let's do some task sourcing so not outsourcing but task sourcing and we're going to hire someone remotely to do this for 20 hours a week and you can pay them i hate to say next to peanuts but certainly much less than you would pay a full-time equivalent and now that household is a two-income household and sure it may not be as much money as they otherwise would have had two full-time working parents in the household but it's some amount of money and the labor market can afford to have that individual jump into the workforce I mean, we have all-time low unemployment rates at the same time when people have inflation concerns and when the ongoing growth in the economy is, uh, you know, at least questionable for the next year or so. It's kind of a fascinating dynamic. Yeah. And I've been watching, there's something called the inactivity rate. Um, I've been watching this very closely because the inactivity rate skyrocketed during COVID, not surprisingly, but it hasn't really gone down that much. So the inactivity rate these are uh, what we call NEETs, right? Not in employment, education, or training. So these are folks who, um, it, it appears they, they fully pull themselves out of the labor market. Now, some of these folks are secretly working, which is to say they might be working under the table. So they're not, they, they don't Ash. have an employer per se, but they work for their uncle. Right. And so if you work for your uncle and your uncle pays you in cash, then you don't have to have your wage garnished for student loans or child support or taxes. Or pay taxes. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. And then the the other group that I see in these needs as well is uh, DoorDash and Uber. And so so they're not they don't consider themselves employed because they're working maybe a couple hours a day for DoorDash. Um but uh, they're not counted as part of the labor force necessarily. Right now, the uh, inactivity rate for men between the ages of uh, 25 and 64, so this is more or less prime working age, that inactivity rate is close to 11%. That's, that's about twice what it was 20 years ago. So I'm following this very closely because uh, in, in the past, uh, in the 1950s, if you look at the labor force participation rate among men in this cohort, you were 90%, right? E everybody, everybody in this, in this uh, group was working. Well, increasingly, that's not happening. Uh, and so, so the unemployment rate is really low right now, but the labor force participation rate, well, that peaked in around 1999 and has been going down in the United States ever since. And that's, that's not a demographic issue. That's amongst the prime working age adults. I regret to say that we have used up all our time because there's about 40 other fascinating topics that I would like to address with you. But I'd like to thank you, Mark, for your appearance today. Oh, well, I appreciate you having me and my apologies to your audience because uh, I can go on a ramble if they're not careful. I never noticed. <laughs> this has been Everyday Law. I'm Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.